You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The good news of Jesus, Messiah, Son of God. These sorts of words begin the canonical Gospels, and the notion of Gospel, proclamation, announcement, has been at the core of Christian confession for as long as there have been Christians. Yet that central news has given way in this historical moment or that, sometimes to an attempt at some kind of timeless philosophy, sometimes to a regime of self-help and good advice. In his 2015 book, Simply Good News, N.T. Wright calls Christians once again to tell the old, old story precisely as news, to insist anew that our, that our word to the world be that God has done something and is doing something and will do something again. And Christian Humanist Profiles is thrilled today to welcome N.T. Wright onto the show to talk about that book. Thank you for coming on the show, Tom. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Well, early in this book, you tell the story of the Gospel of Octavian, according to the heralds of the empire. What kind of narrative would that have been in that first century, and how does getting that story in place help us to understand what it means to proclaim the Gospel of Jesus, the Messiah? Yeah, great question. Octavian was the man who then became known as Augustus, who was the adopted son and heir of Julius Caesar, who's probably the most famous Roman of all time, ancient Roman of all time. And uh, Octavian, after the death of Julius Caesar, set about a campaign, a complicated campaign, which was effectively a civil war, although the Romans um, practiced it all over the the ancient Greek world and and chased one of the enemies down as far as Egypt. Um, And the idea was that Octavian wanted, he realized he had the chance to become, as it were, master of the universe, certainly master of the Roman universe. And Rome already had quite a a significant empire with holdings and and rule um, over a wide area of the Mediterranean world, east and west and south. But uh, it was a question of who was going to be in charge of it from now on. And so when Octavian um, managed to defeat his uh, multiple enemies, this was then translated into a message, a propaganda message, we might call it today, um, because he said, good news, I have brought peace to the world. Now, of course, Cynics then and cynics subsequently looked at it and said, well, if by that you mean you've seen off all your enemies, you've killed everyone who was opposing you, then in a sense, yes, of course there is peace. But uh, nevertheless, he got his court poets and historians to tell the story as though this was the climax of the great story of Rome for hundreds and hundreds of years, that at last Rome dominated the world under the rule of this one man, uh, Octavian, who then was hailed as Augustus, which is a kind of an honorific title. And, uh, and so he brought good news to the world. He brought peace. He brought, he said, freedom. And so this, this word went round that there's going to be no more war. Um, it's all going to be fine. Everyone who gives allegiance to this particular ruler is going to find that their life is transformed for the better. So in other words, something has happened as a result of which everything is now changed for the better. And if you were living in Rome at the time when this news came from the battles that were far away, then it would mean that fairly soon Octavian is going to come back to Rome um, to celebrate this great victory and to establish his kingdom once and for all. And that was, that was the way the story was told. Now, 
uh, you only have to think about that for a minute or two to see the obvious similarities with the message about Jesus, that Jesus had won a great victory, a victory not just not over physical enemies, but over the power of death itself and everything that causes death, including sin, and that he was now establishing his rule, and that this was good news for everyone who submitted in allegiance to him. And the word for allegiance is the same as the word for faith. So we can see how faith and faithfulness and allegiance um, play into this narrative. So um, I have argued in the book that for, for Paul, for instance, going about the ancient Roman world, announcing that Jesus was the true Lord of the world and that he had brought true peace and freedom and he had won the great victory. This would have sounded very familiar to a whole lot of people at the time. And it reminds us then, as you said in your introduction, that for Paul, this message was not about a new way of reordering your private spiritual interiority. It was about something that had happened in the real world, Jesus' death and resurrection, something that would happen, uh, namely that Jesus would come back and complete the work that he had there begun, and something that was true in between what had happened and what would happen. In other words, the new phase of life, way of life for the whole world, and especially for anyone who put their trust, their allegiance, their faith in this Jesus. So that's basically how it worked. Right. I mean, what's, what's fascinating about this is the way that you remind us to think about this is that Christianity was one of two very significant stories uh, that claimed to be culminating in that first century moment. Yeah, that, 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 is, that is truly fascinating. I was actually in email correspondence just a week or so ago with one of the great Pauline scholars of the last generation, Wayne Meeks of Yale mm -hmm. University, because he had uh, mentioned in, in, in an article some years ago something about this strange early Christian innovation of an idea that the whole of history had a plot with uh, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I emailed him and I said, Wayne, I just read this article of yours, which I hadn't taken account of before, um, and I think you're absolutely right about the early Christian story, but surely it would be true to say that there was another very similar story going around, namely the Roman one. Mm -hmm. And he wrote back at once and said, yes, that's, that's absolutely true, and we need to think more about that. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, one of the premises of the book is that the accounts of the Gospels that don't treat it as, a good, as good news misses the point. And news, by your account, must be a new event that, that comes into an old story. So what yeah. impulses, as you imagine things, have tended to lead the faithful away from the news and towards that sort of good advice mindset that you talk about so much? Yeah, I think this is a very long um, and, and dark story, the story of Western Christianity, because it, through the Middle Ages, and especially once the split between East and West uh, happened a thousand years ago, the Western Church, the, the Roman, Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, um, very much went for a picture of Christianity in terms of how to make sure you get to heaven and how to make sure you don't go to hell. And you only have to think of the Sistine Chapel, um, Michelangelo's great artwork, or of um, Dante's great poem of um, heaven, hell, and purgatory. See, this was, this was how their minds worked. So then they would interpret the good news as here is the real way to make sure you get to heaven. And so it becomes a kind of a system, what you, something about what you have to do. Here's, in other words, it's advice. Here's how you have to be at the moment 
whether you say your prayers in a particular way, whether you behave in a particular way, whether you believe in a particular way. And so what happened at the Reformation, which was enormously important, was that they were trying to give, if you like, biblical answers to the medieval questions. And what has struck me increasingly over many years is that though that's really important to go back to the Bible and say, maybe there are better answers than the ones we've got. Actually, the Bible would adjust the questions as well and would say, no, this isn't just about do I or don't I get to heaven. It's about what is it that's happened that means that the, the world is now a different place. We are now living in a different period of time. Something has happened which has changed everything, not just which has opened to me the possibility of taking up an option on my ultimate eternal security. But, I mean, of course, within the big picture that I'm advocating, that is completely taken care of. It's not that, that uh, ultimate salvation becomes irrelevant, but that much more than that, it's about the kingdom of God coming on earth as in heaven, and that is launched with the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. Now, my listeners are not going to forgive me if I don't come to Dante's defense here. Uh, I okay. will say that Dante in particular, I won't speak for the whole Middle Ages by any means, but he does have a very central sense of historical disruption uh so i mean in the inferno i mean there is a chasm in the middle of inferno uh that's caused precisely by the harrowing of hell and you know the souls in purgatory await the day that they will be reunited uh, yeah. with their bodies so i, I do want yeah, to come yeah. to dante's defense but i'll no Absolutely fair enough, um, and I'm not a, I'm not a Dante scholar, um, but I, I'm I'm merely observing. I mean, I don't know if, you, if you've read Stephen Greenblatt's book Hamlet in Purgatory. He does a really nice job of showing the way in which purgatory came to dominate the Western mind, particularly by the end of the 15th century. This was mm -hmm. this was uh, something that most people thought about quite a lot of the time and every time you went to a funeral you know whether uncle joe is now in purgatory and will he have to do five years or 500 years or <laughs> can we do anything here to help him on his way mm -hmm. and then the way in which this is already creeping into the popular culture so that with shakespeare at the time of the reformation um, and after the generation after the Reformation, Shakespeare in his play Hamlet has Hamlet coming back from Wittenberg, which is obviously the, the center of Lutheranism, mm -hmm. comes back to Denmark, and he obviously has ceased to believe in purgatory. And the first thing he discovers is that his father is appearing as a ghost, right. saying, I'm having a terrible <laughs> time down here. Do something to sort it out. Yes, um, yes. And, the, and so, I mean, uh, yes, I think what you see in the late Middle Ages um, mm -hmm. is, is, as it were, a corrupted version of something which Dante would give a much more sophisticated and nuanced account of. Right, right. Um, but so, so, I mean, yeah, of course, Dante is one of the great <laughs> poets in the Western canon. There's no question about that. Right. Um, but I think it's the way that that is received and heard in the popular imagination is that the whole thing is just about heaven and hell. Right, and to go back and to the, the Gospel of Octavian, yeah. you know, Dante's <laughs> strangeness is that he, he believes the Gospel of Octavian and the Gospel of Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> but, back yeah. to your well, book, back to your book. <laughs> that's right, and because, of course, Virgil, Virgil is hugely important for, for Dante. Oh, sure. And Virgil becomes a, a Christian poet in a sense, or a pre-Christian, almost Christian poet, and he's the one who knows the secrets. But, of course, Virgil was one of the court poets of Octavian, yes. Um, telling the story in such a way that um, citizens of the empire uh, reading Virgil, and Virgil was a school text right across the Middle East uh, by, by St. Paul's Day, um, uh, would, would have their, their narrative eye drawn along and up mm -hmm. to this great climax of history.
Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, first of all, our listeners know that a, a dream of mine just came true. I got to talk Dante with N.T. Wright. But <laughs> back, <laughs> well, back you to your book. Well, you probably know more about Dante than I do. <laughs> <laughs> back to your book, though. When the faithful yeah. speak the good news, folks are just as likely to protest as they are to rejoice. Now, when St. Paul refers to his own message as foolishness to some and scandal to others, what narrative background makes sense of that claim? Well, um, it, it's foolishness to the Greeks, he says, um, and by Greeks he means all those who aren't Jews, because, of course, most of the ancient Mediterranean world spoke Greek. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's folly, because they are looking for the kind of wisdom in the Socratic tradition, a wisdom of skillful rhetoric, a wisdom of artful philosophy, something which would be along the lines of either the Stoics or the Epicureans, or possibly more so, um, and the last place they would expect to find that wisdom would be in the Jewish tradition, which is obviously where Paul's message is rooted. And particularly when Paul says, actually, the one who embodies this wisdom was a crucified man. Um, th- that's just so scandalous. It's very hard for us now, 2,000 years later, when the cross has been so important as a positive signal in Western mm-hmm. culture, to, 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 to see how it must have sounded. Um, and you only have to sort of think of the electric chair or a firing squad or somebody being beheaded by a terrorist or something to think um, how could somebody to whom a horrible thing like that happened be the savior of the world the master of the universe and it's just utterly ridiculous so they just say you're talking nonsense you you must have been sitting out in the sun or had too much to drink or something or for a North American like myself you know a a photograph from the Abu Ghraib prison held up and someone says this is your salvation Exactly, exactly. One of the people being tortured there is mm-hmm. is is the savior of the world. That's that's a good a good illustration. Um, and and then for the Jews, um, we know a great deal about the Jewish expectation of the time because we have quite a lot of very different texts from the Dead Sea Scrolls, books like Fourth Ezra, the Maccabean literature, um, all sorts of. And we also know from Josephus and elsewhere about the movements of revolution that were going on in Paul's day and over the next two generations through to the final catastrophic revolt of Bar Kokhba in 132 to 135. Mm-hmm. And I mean, all of that indicates that the Jews are looking for ultimate rescue. They are expecting their God, because he's the creator God, to step in at last, to do what he's always promised, to do what they've had foretastes of already. You know, it wouldn't have been totally out of the blue because the Maccabean crisis produced a great moment of liberation and victory um, in, in uh, 164 BC. And they were telling those stories and saying, that's what it's going to be like in the future. Only this time God will do it fully and finally and forever. And they had things like Psalm 72 in their heads. They had things like Isaiah 11 in their heads. Um, And that's what they were looking for. And so, again, if you say the Messiah has come and he was crucified by the Romans, that's like saying the sunrise came at last. And instead of shedding light and warmth, all we got was darkness and cold. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's simply nonsense. So it's foolish and it's scandalous because the idea of a crucified Messiah means that somehow the fulfillment of God's covenant plan involved... Uh, the, the dying of the one who represented his people. And uh, that, as Paul knew well, this is one of the reasons he was persecuting the church before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Um, Paul knew perfectly well that that was uh, a sign that God's purposes for Israel were being turned upside down and inside out. And naturally, as a loyal, devout Jew, he resisted that literally tooth and nail. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to turn to the, the modern world. 
Uh, Those who want to seem sophisticated have, at least since Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, claimed that they value Jesus as an ethical teacher, but they want to have nothing to do with all of this superstitious resurrection business. You claim, in the face of those kinds of people, that the advice Jesus gives would actually be very bad advice if the resurrection (laughs) weren't in place. Take a moment to tell our listeners why. Yeah, um, Jesus says a lot of things which, when you stand back and say, does this make sense as ethics, uh, you you have to say, well, maybe not quite, actually. I mean, think of what he says in Mark 7, when he warns about the things that come out of the heart, um, all kinds of wickedness and immorality and deceit and murder and and all, all the rest of it. So these are the things that come out of the heart, and these defile a person. And you might say, well, thanks, Jesus. Now we know that since those things are coming out of our hearts half of the time, we're all basically defiled. We're all basically in a mess. Um, and I think Jesus' answer would be, yes, but I have a cure for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, there, there are other passages as well where he talks about the hardness of heart and so on. And it's as though uh, he is resisting any suggestion that you can sort out the human problem simply by giving better ethical teaching. Hey, guys, here's what you've got to do. You've got to love one another. You've got to be nice to each other. You've got to stop fighting. Yeah, we can all say that. But Jesus was much more realistic. He knew that all this stuff comes from the depth of the human heart. And so he seems to be invoking the ancient Jewish tradition, which you get in Deuteronomy and the Psalms and Jeremiah, that one day God is going to deal with the problem of the heart. Of, of the human heart, that, that the inner springs of motivation are going to have something happen to them. Now, it's very cryptic in the Gospels. That's why you need Paul and the rest to, to, to draw out the significance. But um, behind all of that is the fact that Jesus' basic proclamation is about the kingdom of God. Now, of course, in the Western tradition, many people, like some of the liberal Germans at the end of the 19th century, were keen to say, that by the kingdom of God, Jesus basically meant a new standard of ethics, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was always called man in those days. And uh, <laughs> so that th- this is what we all now have to do, and that's the kingdom of God. And that completely ignores the Jewish context in which the kingdom of God means God becoming king on earth as in heaven. God establishing a new uh, state of affairs. And so Jesus' ethical teaching, such as it is, involves on the one hand the change of heart, on the other hand the larger context that something has got to happen. And the thing that's got to happen, and it only, you know, that's why the Gospels are such extraordinary stories, because you only gradually realize as the story comes through that when Jesus is talking about going to his own death, um, somehow this has something to do with a real victory over the ultimate source of dark power, uh, whether you call it the Satan or the deceiver or Beelzebul or, or just the power of sin or whatever, they seem to be quite happy about using different terms. Mm-hmm. But somehow Jesus' death is going to be that kind of a victory, and that without that victory, then you can whistle for any ethical improvement or any societal improvement. Um, and the only reason we know it's a victory is because three days later he was raised from the dead. In other words, whatever it is that ultimately causes death has been defeated. So the cross and resurrection go together very closely and interpret one another in a sense. And so all of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God makes no sense unless you have the cross and resurrection at the end of the story. Putting that lot together has been very, very difficult 
in Western Christianity, and still is. Um, our whole thought patterns are not designed to do that, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are doing exactly that all the time. Mm-hmm. Now, I've got a question to, to follow up on something you just said. You, you noted that when New Testament writers talk about the powers that govern this time, this dark time before the fulfillment of the kingdom, if you will, that they use yeah. Satan, Beelzebul, the power of sin, the power of death. Uh, would you call those uses allegorical, or would you prefer a different term for how they're using those phrases? Oh, goodness. Um, I think I, I wouldn't want to say they are allegorical and just kind of leave it at that. I think I would want to say that they were aware, as we should be aware, that mm-hmm. what you're dealing with there is a mysterious, elusive, dark force or power which resists our attempts at categorization. Oh. Uh, you will know the book by Walter Wink, who wrote on, uh, the trilogy on the powers. Yes, indeed. And, I mean, he, mm-hmm. he lines up all the different uh, words for, for the powers that are used in the New Testament and the surrounding literature. And uh, it's, it's a very convincing picture because it's so complicated, you know, that, and it's as though they're having a stab at this and putting a name here and there but that doesn't mean that we now understand it. It just means there's something out there. Let's call it this for the moment. And the words that we use are basically heuristic. That is to say, they don't carry their definitions with them. They're just useful labels for us to say something like this, something like that. Okay. And that gradually, I mean, by the time you get to the book of Revelation, it becomes very concrete and, and almost personalized. But um, I think they, they would advise us against trying to be too precise. We just don't have the language, and nor did they. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, well, good. Now, when you get to your third chapter, you end that chapter with a pair of sentences that I really enjoyed, and I'm going to quote you here. Quote, this is the Christian gospel. Do not allow yourself to be fobbed off with anything less, close quote. <laughs> You've been telling readers, and I've been among those readers for 20 years now, that any theology that doesn't offer a transformed creation shaped by the resurrection isn't worth the bother. Once again, I'm going to ask you to play a cultural commentator here. Why do you think people have a tendency to settle for lesser Gospels? Yeah, I think partly it's the Western individualism, which says, if it isn't true for me, I'm not interested. You know, the, the, there's that wonderful uh, Dilbert cartoon where the dog goes to the door and somebody says, um, we've come to give you the solution to problems of world peace and justice and, and happiness for all. And the dog says, what's in it for me? <laughs> and the people uh, turn, away, turn and go away with uh, sort of shaking their heads. And he, the dog comes back into the house and he says, I will always wonder if there was a better answer to that question. Um, and I think part of our difficulty is that so many uh, people in the in the modern world uh, hearing something want to say immediately what's in it for me or, or the most what's in it for my family or conceivably my church and the answer is there'll be plenty in it for you and your family and your church but only if you get the bigger picture first um, it's, it's rather like C.S. Lewis says somewhere about you know if you if you go for the small thing you may even lose that but if you go for the bigger mm-hmm. thing you'll get the small thing thrown in um, so it's partly the individualism, partly the Platonism of modern Western culture, where we have just 
drunk it in with our mother's milk that actually the present world is a place of shadows and and gloom and transience and uh, mm. corruption and that the best thing for us to do is to find a non-spatio-temporal world a non-physical world where we can live and then we'll go there one day and be happy forever after and this world is just going to go to hell in a handbasket and that'll be it so in resisting the individualism and the platonism um uh, of course i'm not thereby saying that i'm becoming a materialist either an epicurean or a marxist or whatever who thinks that the material world is all that there is far from it Rather, in the biblical worldview, heaven and earth overlap and interlock. You've heard me say this before. You've read mm, me write, uh, writing this mm-hmm. before. <laughs> um, and and uh, that is mysterious. And like evil itself, we don't have very good language for the ways in which and the means by which heaven and earth overlap and interlock. But um, the Christian gospel is premised on the fact that they do. Um, so that it's partly the individualism, partly the Platonism, but also partly a worry about the ways in which uh, some pantheistic theologies have uh, written and, and taught as though the present world is itself somehow either divine or quasi-divine or part of God, and so that we just have to be uh, green eco-warriors because that's helping the hidden God who's out there in nature to be himself or herself or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen some Christians who have obviously run into that stuff, and then in reaction against it, they resist any attempt to say, actually, um, what happens to the ecosystem really matters. And, mm-hmm. and we've not always been good uh, at, at explaining what we mean by that. And it's perfectly true. There are plenty of pantheists out there, plenty of atheists out there, who want to corral us into saying that the only real gospel is, can we save the planet? And the answer is, um, no, actually, God will save God's world in God's way. But Mm -hmm. following the resurrection of Jesus, we can and should be working in the power of the Spirit to bring signs of that new creation into God's world here and now. Right. So, I mean, in some sense, I mean, it's not that we have to save the planet, you know, to curry God's favor, but that we get to treat the planet well because God has already saved it. Well, um, yeah, in, uh, God has begun the work of radical renewal. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. the phys- this is why the resurrection of Jesus is so important. The physical body of Jesus comes out of the tomb on Easter morning transformed. It's the same body, but it's transformed. And Paul is riffing on that when in First Corinthians or the end of uh, Philippians 3, He's talking about the transformation which God will give to our bodies and in Philippians 3 to the whole world. And he talks about the power by which Jesus can subject everything to himself. And, and at the back of all that, of course, is Genesis 1 and 2, where God gives to human beings the responsibility for looking after his world on his behalf, part of what it means to be in God's image. Mm-hmm. And also a very important psalm like Psalm 8 which repeats the Genesis mandate and says that humans are crowned with glory and honor with all things put in subjection under their feet. And Mm -hmm. the letter to the Hebrews, as you know, says, but it's funny, we don't see that just yet. Ah, but we see Jesus. In other words, Mm -hmm. it's already true in Jesus, and God intends that it'll be true in and through the rest of us. And if we are in Christ um, by baptism and faith, we already share that, and we have to be working at what that means. That's what Romans 8 is all about, partly. Mm -hmm. Right. I suppose what I had in mind is that, uh, you know, if if the folks who 
have a tendency to say, well, you know, God is going to renew the earth, so therefore we can treat it however we want to in the yep, meantime. Yep, yep. Those same people, but, I have a hunch, would never say God is going to save my family, so I should treat them like dirt in the meantime, so they'll really appreciate precise. it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's a good a good parallel. I've not used that argument, but I see exactly what you mean. The argument I've often used, however, is is about about holiness. That if somebody says, you know, I, I'm I'm a pastor, somebody comes to me and says, I'm having a real struggle with uh, one or two sins that have got a hold on my life, but it's fine because I know that sooner or later God will set me free entirely, and I'll be a new person, and I won't even have the desire to sin. So I'm just not going to bother resisting at the moment. I'm just going <laughs> to let it carry on. Um, and and any sensible pastor would say, uh, you have a problem. And yes, <laughs> in Christ, you do have the responsibility to resist um, even the most alluring and, 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 mm-hmm. and uh, exciting sins that are presenting themselves to you. Right. Um, so th- it's, it's what in the trade we call inaugurated eschatology. Something mm-hmm. about the end, eschatology, has already begun inaugurated in the present. And we have to ride that wave and not resist it. Mm-hmm. Very good, very good. And Honestly, the scenario you just narrated makes me think that Dante's Purgatory isn't such a bad book to read. <laughs> <laughs> well, back to, yeah, I mean, uh, okay, uh, the Purgatorio is actually the, the bit of Dante I know best, and I think the reason it's it, that is the most popular part of the of the whole work in Western culture, and mm-hmm. I think that's because people have an instinctive sense that purgatory is more like where we are at present. We kind of recognize ourselves. Oh, there. sure, sure. We uh, want the wrong things. That, yeah, right. yeah. The, 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 the reformers said that actually we have our purgatory here. Mm-hmm. The Christian life in the present is the purgatory that, through which God um, um, uh, gets rid of that which is bad in us. Right. Ending with, death, ending with death itself. Right. Well, I want to talk about a more recent meta-narrative that wants to tell history differently. Many modern yeah. folks have a notion that the world undertook its most significant transformation around the 18th and 19th centuries, a stance towards the world that you cast as a false, self-serving story and maybe even an idol. Now, what damage does this sort of, what you call eschatological snobbery, what kind of damage does that do to Christians, and in what ways does gospel run counter to that meta-narrative? Yeah, yeah. It's a great question. And uh, uh, here again, I've already quoted C.S. Lewis, and as you, as you will tell, I'm, I'm quite a fan and have been all my adult life. Mm-hmm. Um, Lewis talks about this in terms of literature and worldviews relating to literature, where he says that right through from the ancient world up till about the 18th century, there is a broad continuum where they are all basically within the same sort of story, and that something happened uh, basically in the Enlightenment, which really did change all that, so that now we have what he calls a chronological snobbery, and we sort of assume that anyone who lived before the invention of the steam engine or whatever else you want to say, or Darwin's voyages um, coming back with the origin species, etc., anyone who lived before all that is somehow backward and a bit stupid and slow and so on. And, of course, the easy answer to that is, um, excuse me, read Dante or read Shakespeare or go and mm-hmm. look at the Parthenon or um, all the, some of the greatest works of art in the world are before the 18th century, thank God. Um, so, so that already, but there is a disconnect there. That, that um, and people in my culture, and I think in yours, tend to talk in terms of now that we live in the 21st century, as mm-hmm. though there is a sense that progress really got underway 
with the modern uh, science and technology of the 18th and early 19th centuries, and that somehow the whole of the rest of the world, culture, art, uh, ethics, everything, was progressing in the same way and for similar reasons, that now we'd grown up, we could make machines, we could make railway trains, and then airplanes, and then we could go to the moon. And so the assumption was that morally we've been improving, in inverted commas, on something of the same scale, and so that all we have to do is just wait another few years, and then just as they will by then have invented three new forms of computers and smartphones and so on, so by then our Western countries will have passed um, even more liberating laws and, and, and statutes and so on in whatever area it is, whether it's marriage or anything else. Mm-hmm. And so we live with this myth of progress that we sort of all woke up in the 18th century and from now on it's a smooth narrative where everything is getting better and better. And just as the answer to the first part of that narrative is go and read Shakespeare or look at the Parthenon, so the answer to the second part of the narrative is is look at the middle of the 20th century and look at the start of the 21st and see, um, is this world actually a place of wonderful, ethical, peace, joy, tranquility, um, and serious moral progress? And the answer is, of course it isn't, absolutely not we are just we're only just starting to realize just how bad things have been and i mean for instance in my country at the moment there are lots of scandals coming to light from things that were done by very high up people in the society in the 1960s and 1970s when people were saying well all those silly old rules about sex we don't need to keep those anymore and so then people were given carte blanche as it were to abuse children and do all sorts of things Mm -hmm. and to cover it up and, and that's all now coming out to light. And, of course, happened in the church as well, but it happened in politics, it happened in the police, it happened in the military, it happened everywhere, sadly, schools, you name it. And so th- these are kind of a reductio ad absurdum of the idea that all we have to do is wait a bit and things will change for the better. Um, mm. And that, of course, is another abdication of the human responsibility. That's a way of saying we don't need to try. <laughs> it's just going to happen anyway. And, and so the way in which it's self-serving for the West, because this was a Western thing, it's the Western Enlightenment, France, Germany, Britain, Scotland indeed, and of course particularly America, um, throughout the 19th century, these were the countries from which people went out to colonize and to basically take over the world, um, mm-hmm. for better and for worse. And that's still, in a sense, we're living with the legacy, what we're living, living with the legacy of. Um, and so the stories of progress were stories about us and our world. And you can tell this when people see on the news um, terrible, terrible things happening in Iraq or Afghanistan or um, that horrible um, earthquake, cyclone and flood that's just happened in one of the Pacific Islands. People in the West look at these things and the people that they see on their television screens are so not like us that obviously radically different, that even though we may feel distantly sorry for them, it doesn't kind of stab us in the heart in the way that something happening down the road does, um, because we are the enlightened ones, and they, well, too bad for them. It's very sad, no doubt, but then Mm -hmm. they were always far away and and backward, as we used to say. And even though intellectually we know that that's a lie and a a wicked lie, um, these are all our brothers and sisters within the human family, um, it is how people in instinctively think and that is the legacy the the damning legacy of the western enlightenment Mm -hmm. and it's interesting too that a sort of sentimentalist ethics you know coming out of adam smith and david hume uh you know recent psychological studies have demonstrated that empathy extends far more reliably to people who resemble us linguistically and even 
in terms of physical exactly. appearance than it does to people who are other. Exactly, exactly. I remember a philosopher friend of mine in Oxford several years ago uh, when we were we were actually rowing on the river one day, training for training for a for a rowing race, and he pointed out a sign on the bank which was by a lifebelt. In case somebody fell in, there was a lifebelt there which you could pick up and throw into the water, and it said, "Do not damage this lifebelt." it might be used to rescue you or a member of your family. And he pointed out that the argument was exactly as you've said. The appeal was, you probably don't care if it's not a member of your family, but right. just supposing <laughs> it was. And so the, the, whoever put up the notice was aware that that is sadly how people habitually think. Mm -hmm. Now, when you talk about history, you do propose an alternative to that sort of steady and inevitable progress narrative. You suggest that Christians tell the story of humanity in this age between the ages as one of sporadic change, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, never a reliable march forward. Now, some yeah. moments, as you narrate them, genuinely anticipate the fullness of the kingdom, but that's no guarantee that the next one will. So yeah. what makes such an alternative mode of history, history telling so important for contemporary Christians? Yeah, I, I think, oh, goodness, that's a great question. There's several things. Uh, I, uh, I have a favorite book, which I refer people to on this, which is a comparatively recent book by my friend John Ortberg from Menlo Park Church in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the book is called Who Is This Man? And that, book, that title wouldn't at once tell you what it's about. It's about the way in which throughout Christian history, people who give allegiance to Jesus have actually made the world a better place by doing education, by doing medicine, by doing care of the elderly mm -hmm. and the dying, by making things better for little children, by the abolition of slavery, by all sorts of things. And we need to know that story because so often today people look at the church and say, you guys are just part of the problem. You're not part of the solution. Mm -hmm. um, you've been just as bad as everybody else and worse because Christianity has burnt witches and it's done crusades and it's done this and it's done that. And there's a regular litany of all the wickednesses of Christianity. And we need to, to, to be sharp about knowing the answer to that. Um, but as, as, we, as we do that, as we tell that story, there are all sorts of other things about moments in history which we also have to say. We have to say this is not a steady progress, as you rightly said. Um, it goes in fits and starts, and there are many backward steps as well as forward ones. Um, and so, you know, there were great things done by many of the early Christian evangelists in the first four or five or six or seven centuries you know in in my own country in in britain not least in the north of britain there were great people like aden and uh, and cuthbert and so on who were great preachers and they did great healings and so on and then uh, things kind of went into bad decline at various times when people just thought oh well that's fine we're all right now then mm -hmm. watch out because it can easily go wrong and some of the great horrors of the late Middle Ages were, as it were, the corruption of some of the great goods that had gone before, like whether you agree with it or not, the theology of Thomas Aquinas, you know, people like that. And you think, there's a man nearly a thousand years ago, just one of the greatest intellects of world history, shaping the way people think about philosophy, culture, um, faith, etc. And yet, so many people who came after him were just getting it wrong and, and, and going, going downhill. Mm -hmm. And so um, we've always got to be on our toes. And, uh, and it seems to me that 
when you look at the reform movements, whether it's the Franciscans, whether it's the Protestant Reformation, whether it's more recent reform movements, it's often kind of around the edge, just when things are going stale. God does a new thing to wake up the church, to shake it up. And often that's resisted, of course, by people in power and people with, you know, supposed prestige. But we, we always have to be on the lookout for the new things that God is doing in unexpected ways and places and through unexpected people. And obviously that's how the whole story began in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, and it's fascinating, too, because I'm a professor of literature and rhetoric at a small Christian college right. in Georgia. And, you know, right. when I talk to our ministry majors, you know, one of the things I try to impress on them, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, is that something that seems as abstract as a philosophy of history can make all the difference for even what counts as good or bad. And, you know, yeah. I, I think that this conversation, you know, illustrates that, that you know, if you regard anything that departs from the 14th century as necessarily good, you're going to come up with very different questions and therefore very different oh, yeah. answers from something more like a Platonist view of things where, yeah. you know, your your vision of the good comes from conversation rather than simple departure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, that's, that's very interesting. And, uh, of course, one of the things that happened in the early 16th century with the Protestant Reformation was that that wasn't a smooth, easy thing either. Oh, you know, when I first was, I was first taught about the Reformation, it was very simplistic, um, and I can't remember who first told me this, but some you know Christian leader who I valued told it in terms of the great light. Um, God allowed the Bible to come forward at last, and all the reformers had to do was tell people what was in it, and that was all going to be fine. And then when you actually read what's going on, not least about the Radical Reformation, Mm -hmm. it's as though once they've said the Catholic Church is completely wrong, then there's about a thousand different ways to say, well, what's right then? And they end up pretty soon having some pretty nasty wars amongst themselves to try to sort that out, as though by fighting one another amongst Christians, that would somehow establish the truth of one interpretation over the other. And you think, how could they do that? Um, And yet, that is the danger, that that we have now seen the light, therefore, unless you agree with us, you must be wrong, and we're going to kill you. Um, Mm. And, and, uh, you know, sadly, recent history doesn't show that we've advanced hugely beyond that. But, I mean, take another reform uh, in in my own country, when I was quite young, we abolished the death penalty. I'm I am just old enough to remember the last time that somebody was executed for murder in in the UK, okay. and actually, um, many years later. Uh, new evidence came out which showed that probably he was innocent, as he had pre- as he had professed all along. And the fact that the death penalty was abolished then is something that the great majority of the people in the people in this country, I think, I think I'm not sure. I haven't seen the statistics recently, but most people would not want to go back on that. And interestingly, of course. Um, most of the early Christian fathers were opposed to the death penalty and told off emperors when they persisted in killing uh, criminals or opponents or whatever. Some of the early fathers were very clear this was not how the state should behave. And that raises other questions. Okay, what are you, you going to do with criminals, etc.? Mm-hmm. But um, so, so there are things which some people have seen as advances where other people say, uh, oh, no, in the Bible, the death penalty is okay, therefore we can do it. And uh, there are some serious issues which have to be wrestled with there. Mm-hmm. Well, you return uh, fairly late in the book to a, a criticism of modern atheism that I've seen in your books before and I've enjoyed, so I want you to talk about it a little bit. 
right. namely that atheism, as most folks talk about it, assumes a certain kind of God loosely based on the Christian God, but far more deist than biblical. Um, should Christians think of that sort of atheism as a weird sort of idolatry? That's a good question. I mean, atheism is, as it were, producing a vacuum mm -hmm. where most humans think that there is something there, to put it crudely. The atheist says, actually, no, there isn't. There's nothing there. Um, there is nothing except what we can put into um, our scientific experiments um, or what we can observe through a telescope or a microscope or whatever. And that's it. That's all there is, guys. And, of course, then <laughs> a theology like nature abhors a vacuum. And what then very easily happens, and it happened in the late 19th century with, with various odd movements, is that people uh, move towards a pantheism, where that they then become aware of the, what we call the forces of, within nature, um, within what we call nature. And, and it's very interesting how the idea of forces in nature pretty soon start to replicate um, some of the old divinities um, gods of blood and soil and earth and, and mm -hmm. sex and drink and so on. And indeed, part of the rise of the Nazi movement in the 1930s and, and then obviously climaxing in the 40s was precisely the appeal to some of the old pagan gods. And sometimes that was quite explicit, but the ground had been prepared for that in a number of ways, not least by uh, the implicit atheism, which had driven God um, out through the ceiling and then new gods come up from the floor. So I'm, I'm not sure that atheism itself is a form of idolatry, though it can become a form of certainly human arrogance, um, but it very quickly opens the door to all sorts of idolatries, basically the old ones back again. Mm -hmm. Well, as a follow-up to that, um, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about the doctrine of creation and what standard back and forth between atheists and apologists misses when it comes to receiving the world as creation. What, what difference does it make theologically to our God talk to yeah, call all yeah. of reality created? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it is extraordinary because immediately it establishes a kind of ontological hierarchy. And I know that the very word hierarchy is anathema to many people, not least in America for some odd reason. Maybe it's to do with George III in the 1770s, <laughs> but we can perhaps draw a veil over that. Um, but the, the hierarchy, which, of course, is fiercely resisted by many today, is that God placed human beings under him and over the earth so that they that human beings receive their stewardship of creation as a vocation and gift from God, so that if you then put God out of the picture, you are simply left with humans knowing in their bones they're supposed to be doing things with this world, but it becomes a matter of, okay, how can we exploit this for our advantage or our pleasure or whatever, mm -hmm. instead of how can we seek responsibly to be stewards of this good creation? So the idea of stewardship, on the one hand, is enormously important. And this all goes back to the biblical idea of humans as the royal priesthood. The other idea is, is worship. Um, one of the great prayers of the church comes from the Apocrypha, from the song which supposedly um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sang when they were thrown into the fiery furnace in Babylon. And it's, O oh, all ye works of the Lord, bless ye the Lord, praise him and magnify him forever. And they go right through. They go nights and days and light and darkness and mountains and hills and seas and floods and whales and all that move in the waters. Bless ye the Lord. And it's, it's celebrating the fact that the task of human beings includes 
celebrating with and on behalf of the whole of creation the goodness and power and beauty and majesty of God. As though the whole of creation is worshipping God in its own way, and the human task is to sum up that worship and turn it into articulate speech. And that goes with, then, the stewardship, because if you are aware that your task as a praising, worshipping human being is to sum up the worship which all creation is inarticulately offering to God, you're going to treat creation very differently from how you would treat it if you didn't think of it as that, if you thought of it as just, oh, miscellaneous, inanimate stuff that we can do what we like with. Mm. So for, for my money, the whole idea of the royal priesthood, which obviously you get in Exodus 19, in Revelation 5, but it all goes back to Genesis 1 and 2 originally, that idea uh, enables you to get a, a rounded, multi-layered view of what the created order actually is and of our remarkably exciting but also humble role within it. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to I want to make a turn to ethics here as as we're heading towards the end of the interview. When you do turn to the contours of the life transformed by that resurrection, by that gospel, you give a pretty strong reading of Philippians three and insist that. And again, I'm going to quote you here: "quote The real and lasting change the gospel produces in individual human lives is shaped at every point by that past event and that future event." Close quote. How does a strong focus on what has happened and what will establish grounds for a strong and complex vision of Christian ethics? Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's a wonderful question. Oh, thank um, you. Uh, no, I mean, it, it, it's, it's spot on. Uh, it's hard to know really where to start. I suppose that the, the, the starting point, actually, for me at least, would be Romans 6 where Paul talks about baptism, and he talks about it in terms of having died with the Messiah and therefore died to sin. That's the whole point of his death, that sin does its worst and is exhausted and defeated on the cross, which is the sort of mystery of the heart of atonement. And that then Paul says, well, by baptism, you are joined to the Messiah's death and you are joined to his resurrection. So, If then, as he says in Colossians, you have died with the Messiah, then there's no place for this, that, and the other. And if you have been raised with the Messiah, then you have to be a resurrection person. And and, and all across Paul, but in Hebrews as well and in, in many other passages, you get this sense that the moral struggle is about constantly rediscovering by faith, often through clenched teeth, because it's going against the grain of what uh, all sorts of things in the culture and in your own heart want to do. Mm. Constantly having to say, no, I am in Christ. I have been baptized. I am part of the body of Christ. The Spirit has worked in my heart so that I do believe. I, I do trust in Christ. I do believe in his resurrection. And therefore, uh, I do not have to obey the dictates of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Here we are in the middle of the season that we Anglicans keep as Lent, and mm-hmm. the world, the flesh, and the devil is what we're supposed to be doing battle with during this time. Um, and, and basically realizing I do not have to do what these forces are telling me to. And it may be hard, and it may be difficult, and it may feel as though I'm actually cutting off an arm or a leg. And then you realize <clears throat> that is precisely what Jesus said it would feel like. Yeah. He said, you know, come after me, you take up your cross. And he said, if, you don't, um, if you're not prepared to cut off your hand or pluck out your eye, 
and, and presumably we assume that that was metaphorical, there may be occasionally it isn't, um, then, then that's, uh, you're, you're not up for this. And it's that bracing challenge. This has happened. He has been killed. He has been raised. I am in him. Therefore, these things are true of me. But then approaching it from the other end, as in, say, 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul is saying, listen, you are already in Christ. You are going to be raised from the dead. Therefore, this present person that you are, and when Paul uses the word body, he often means what we mean when we say person. A body is who you are publicly, who you are before the world, etc. This who you are before the world thing is going to be raised. Therefore, what you do with your body in the present really matters because there is continuity as well as discontinuity with the ultimate body that is to be. Um, And so from both ends, what has happened in the past, what will happen in the future, produces this very striking ethical imperative, which is a long way from just saying, here's a bunch of new rules, now try and keep them. It's not like that at all. Mostly it's, here is the new context within which you might conceivably be able, through character development, etc., to work your way towards being the sort of person who keeps rules that many people give lip service to, but most people don't manage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me, uh, in a course that I teach for first-year college students, we read through the entirety of Plato's Republic, and then I oh, have right. them read the uh, Sermon on the Mount directly <laughs> afterwards, and one of right. the things that always strikes my students is that, you know, whereas Socrates is going to say that the good city is something that is only dimly uh, available to us, even intellectually, and certainly couldn't be realized historically, you know, almost the first thing that Jesus says in the first Sermon on the Mount is, you are the light of the world, present tense. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, yeah. it, it really is a radical uh, departure from the ethical yeah. visions that have been around. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I mean, there's so much that is good in Socrates and so much that is stimulating and challenging, um, mm. but you have to translate it. <laughs> you oh, have absolutely, to, have yeah. to, have to baptize it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I want to interrogate you now that we're talking about philosophy, a little bit about the way you write about philosophy. Now, as, as I'm sure you've picked up, I've benefited from philosophy, especially medieval philosophy, precisely because it helps me to ask the questions that follow from these events that make up the gospel. Now, you write, and I'm going to quote you again, quote, philosophy tidies things up, close quote. Do you have certain schools of thought in mind, or would you maintain that, you know, in heaven and earth there are no more philosophies than are, in your phrase, philosophy, Horatio? (laughs) Wow, that's a huge (laughs) question. Um, And, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean... Of course, our word philosophy, already, we have to problematize it, because what Plato and Aristotle were doing is, I think, significantly different from, say, what um, Locke, Barclay, and Hume were doing, or from what Air Strawson and Warnock were doing, who were the mm-hmm. modern British philosophers that I studied when I was reading philosophy as part of my undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and yet they keep circling around the same sort of questions, which, of course, go back to the great tradition, mm-hmm. uh, not only Plato and Aristotle, the pre-Socratics, but then the, the schools that emerge from 5th century Athens, uh, the Stoics, the Epicureans, etc., uh, etc. Et um, and it's as though uh, we all humans know that these are good questions to ask. What is there and what account can we give of what is there? 
Um, how do we know things? Granted, we can be self-deceived. H- how do we actually know things? And then how do we behave? And those three, as I've argued in my book, on my big book on Paul, those mm. three form a kind of a triangle. Each influences the others and is influenced by them. Um, what is there? That is what the ancients called physics. Um, how do we know things? What they called logic, which included perception and so on. And how do we behave, which is ethics? And part mm. of the point is that for ethics... Um, if you're thinking clearly, brackets logic, then you should be able to see that human behavior ought to be consonant with the way things are, physics. So physics, right. ethics, and logic go together. Now, what you then have in uh, early Christianity, and I think this is already something Paul is starting to develop in Philippians, in 2 Corinthians, in various places particularly, and a bit in Colossians, um, is a sense that because of the new creation, there is a new world, and there are new ways of knowing things, as a result of which there are new ways to behave. And though he doesn't spell it out as physics, logic, and ethics, you can actually see that emerging. I've spelled all this out in Chapter 14 of Paul and the Faithfulness of God, if any mm-hmm. of your listeners are interested in following right. that up. I, I'm working but, my way through that one right now. Oh, good. I'm so <laughs> glad. I hope you enjoy it. Um, But then the result is that some people will say, so does the Christian then live in a totally different world? Is this just like a sort of hermetically sealed world, which is a different world entirely from the world where the atheist philosophers, um, or at least the non-Christian ones, are doing their business? And the answer is no. These worlds confusingly overlap and interlock because the Jesus who is at the heart of the new creation Uh, was and is a human being who lived and walked and taught and died in this human world, and his resurrection is a new creation from within the old, not generating a separate non-spatio-temporal world somewhere else. That's really the problem of, of so many denials of the bodily resurrection. They, mm-hmm. en- they end up creating a Jesus, a risen Jesus, who is nothing to do with this world. So then if you follow that Jesus your system becomes nothing to do with the world. And, and that's a real problem. So what I want to say is that um, most of the great philosophers, to a lesser or greater extent, are describing things in two dimensions, which the Christian would describe in three dimensions. Or, mm-hmm. if you like, since I mentioned the three elements of ancient philosophy, that they're, they're describing things in three dimensions or um, Uh, I don't know how to extend that metaphor, but you hear where mm-hmm. I'm going. That yeah, the in terms of three say, variables. Yeah, three, well, three, three, okay, there may be three variables within one plane, a sort mm-hmm. of a, a horizontal plane, but then the Christian says, actually, there's a vertical plane as well. Right. And when we look at these three variables, all sorts of other things emerge. I mean, one of my favorite parade examples, and I'm, this goes back to, again, undergraduate days when I realized this, was... Um, the question of determinism and free will. You know, philosophers have argued for generations about is everything in fact fixed or, or is the freedom which we think we have when we're deciding whether to do this or that today, is that just an illusion? Mm-hmm. And you can come and go this way and that, and we all want freedom, but we don't, none, we don't any of us want to be mere random particles zipping around without any rhyme or reason. But we're frightened that if we go too far down saying, yeah, there's a causal explanation, we'll end up as determinists, and then we'll feel we've been enslaved or put in a little dark box somewhere mm-hmm. and that we're, we're just puppets. And now, of course, the Christian version of that, if you like, is the, uh, the, the paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And for that, you need a multidimensional vision of God the Creator, of humans and their tasks, etc. 
And of course, the danger with that is that some theologians can collapse the paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility into something that looks worryingly like um, uh, determinism and free will. And then you get extreme hyper-Calvinism on the, on the one hand or extreme, I don't know, Arminianism or something on the other. Right, and that's right. because we, we, are, we are missing out the, the specifically Christian dimension and allowing ourselves to be collapsed back into um, some, some kind of, of merely philosophical view. However, this doesn't mean that the Christian can then do without philosophy. The, the philosophy really does give you those different dimensions which, which one can observe and, and deal with. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, Does that make sense? My, oh, absolutely. And hopefully, if any of my former students are listening to this or current students, you'll you'll recognize some of those great seventh-century uh, Boethius questions coming out there. Uh, uh, so good, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're almost to the end here, and I'm going to indulge myself for a moment with a uh, fans question. Uh, when will we see the fifth installment of Christian Origins and the Question of God oh, series? Good. And will it be three thousand seven hundred pages long? <laughs> I can, I can certainly say that the answer to the last question is no. I have no intention of writing another book over a thousand pages. Um, it's actually, it's, it's not that it's difficult to write, because if there's enough to say, you can do it. It's difficult to keep a handle on it. It's like trying to run a 50-acre garden single-handed. You know, while you're mm-hmm. mowing the lawn at one end, um, there are weeds sprouting at the other end, and you, you can't keep them all under control <laughs> yourself. That's really quite a tough call. Um, the other a, a, a silly remark, but it was how I felt almost as soon as the Big Paul book was finished. Somebody said, uh, so when's the next one coming along? And I said, listen, that's like when somebody has just had a 12-course dinner, asking them if they want bacon and eggs and tomatoes for breakfast in about six <laughs> hours' time. You know, um, thank you. I'm actually done with the big stuff at the moment. I've got right. some small projects I'm working on. Um, sooner or later, I hope, God willing, I hope I will be spared to do Volume 5 on the Gospels, or perhaps even um, Volume 6 on um, uh, missional theology of the New Testament, which is which is what I think I would like to do as Volume 6. Okay. But um, you will know my little book on the Gospels, How God Became King. Yes. Um, that, that is a kind of a distant signpost towards some of the things that I would like Volume 5 to be exploring. But uh, that's a long way off at the moment, and I've, <laughs> I'm actually not done with Paul yet. I'm right now um, trying to finish off um, the book on the history of Pauline interpretation, a modern Pauline interpretation, okay. which I think is really important. A lot of students find it very confusing, faced with all the different theories and ideas about Paul. Where did they all come from? Who was saying what and why and what was going on? So I'm trying to sort out some of that at least. Um, and that's it's quite fun, but also quite a challenge. And when I'm done with that, I've got other smaller, well, not the big topics, but smaller books, which I need mm-hmm. to write before I can get back to the big series. But thanks for the fans' question. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, Tom, I've been steering the conversation up to this point, so in sure. the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word before we head out the door. What do you want our <laughs> listeners thinking about as we wrap up either something we haven't really addressed so far or something you want to reiterate? Oh, my. Thank you. <laughs> A very good question. I wasn't actually expecting it, so I haven't got a, a, an easy answer in my pocket. But, you know, I was having a conversation the other day with a guy who comes to do some work for us around the house, and uh, he's not a believing Christian, but he's obviously kind of on the edge looking in from time to time, and he knows I'm a clergyman and a theologian, etc. We've talked on and off when he's been around. 
And uh, he was asking me questions about Buddhism, and his son had asked him a question about, Dad, what do all religions really have in common, and this and that. And, and the conversation was nearly over, and, I, and my heart smote me, and I just said, hey, hang on. I, I'm missing out the central thing. And the central thing is, it all comes down to Jesus. And, and you can say that in a way that sounds pious and cheap, but actually it remains the truth at every level, the, the highest intellectual level as well as the, the, the most localized personal level that you can say to a small child, that actually you need to get back to the Gospels again and again and again and humbly say, have I really understood who this Jesus is? And the answer for all of us, almost by definition, is no, we haven't actually, and we've got more work to do there. And so when all the theories are done, and when all the shouting and tumult has died down, and we've had all the wonderful arguments, and we've looked at Aquinas and Dante and Boethius, and, you know, these are wonderful, wonderful people, um, ultimately it all comes back to Jesus, which is why Jesus is such a storm center, you know, that the, the, the Jesus seminar and all of that stuff makes the front page in Time magazine because our society knows in its bones, and I think people around the world know in their bones, that they have to do some sort of business with Jesus, even if it's quickly dismissing him. Um, he still stands there as a haunting figure over all human history, and there's a good reason for that. Right. Well, thank you, Tom, for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been good talking to you. Yeah. And I'm so glad when people are taking this book seriously, and uh, uh, nice to hear it. And a very happy Easter to you when it comes. Yes, thank you. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in and downloading this episode. The book is Simply Good News, and it's available right now. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. This is Nathan Gilmore saying, Go in peace. Go in grace, serve the Lord.